Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to Jeremiah. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 20. Four kings of the nation of Israel, or of Judah. The last four kings from David's throne, the last four guys before they're going to enter into captivity. Now, Jeremiah, for the last 40 years, has been preaching. Now, things were pretty good. They felt relatively secure. You know, everything's, you know, gone on like it always has. I mean, there's good times and bad times, but everything's relatively secure. And the Lord would continue to bring this word of repentance, turn, get your heart right with the Lord. But in their security, they wouldn't hear what Jeremiah had to say. They'd mock him. But now, in chapter 21, Babylon is outside the gates. Now, the judgment that that the Lord had told them was coming is there. They're knocking at the door. And all of a sudden, the kings who didn't have any time to listen or to hear what Jeremiah was saying, now they want the prophet. A lot of times in... In our world today, we, we are spending an effort and time, hopefully reaching out with the love of Jesus Christ to a people who feel secure. Life is going on like it always had. And where's the promise of this coming of, of Jesus? The Bible's been talking about that forever and he's not here. But just like the nation of Judah, when Babylon arrived outside the gates, the time will come when the judgment that God has called will fall upon man. That judgment is the opportunity for God to bring His judgment against or upon a Christ-rejecting world who had opportunity to receive, opportunity to believe, opportunity to trust, but life was good. See, that's how it was in Judah. In Judah, they had this little saying. I know some of us think we invented it in the United States. But on the back of their donkeys, they would put this, this saying. They, they'd buy these things that they could stick on the, the back of their donkey. It said, he who dies with the most toys wins. <laughs> now, I know sometimes we think we invented that. But the truth is, that was invented in Judah. Uh, things were good. Life was working out. I mean, they, were, they had stuff. They had stuff, but they didn't have what they didn't have was the most important thing. That what they didn't have was a relationship with God. And during the time when God was reaching out to them, they didn't want Him. And now that time's gone. And there's no time to reach out. The opportunity has passed. And the judgment is walking through the gates. The the tale of four kings is going to go with the four kings that that followed after Josiah. Josiah was a godly king. He stumbled upon (coughs) the word of God somewhere hidden behind his throne. And he read it. And when he read the word of God, he discovered the word of God said that all the kings were supposed to read the Bible. And all the kings were supposed to write their own copy of the Bible so that they knew it and so that they understood it and so that they would use the the precepts that are therein to rule the people. But they hadn't been doing that for years and years and years. So Josiah, he brought this revival on the land and he did this incredible thing and people's hearts were turned back to the Lord. 
But then there was this battle coming up, and, and Pharaoh Nico was, was going to battle, and the Lord told Josiah not to go. And Josiah said, I'm going anyway. And he went, and he died. And that was the last good king that Judah had. The next king that comes on the, li- on the line, and we'll, we'll study a little bit about him tonight, <clears throat> his name is Shalom, or Jehoahaz. Now, what the, here's the exciting thing when you look at the names of kings in the Bible and you get confused. Here's what happened. Mom and dad named them one thing. Then maybe later on, like in the case we'll see tonight, Pharaoh decided, I don't like that name, so I'm going to call you something else. So Pharaoh changed their name because Pharaoh was in control. They made a peace treaty with Pharaoh for a while. Or perhaps Nebuchadnezzar, who comes on the scene, doesn't like their name, and he changes their name. So some of these guys have three different names. The important thing is they're all rotten kings. The last four kings, rotten guys. Shalom or Jehoahaz, um, he, he ruled right after Josiah's death. He was the one the people wanted. He ruled for a whopping three months. At the end of three months, Pharaoh Necho doesn't like him. And Pharaoh Necho comes and takes him captive into Egypt. And Jeremiah gives a prophecy about Jehoahaz. Then the second king is Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim rules after uh, Jehoahaz goes down all the way to 598. The Bible says, Jeremiah writes about him, that he is going to be killed. He's going to be killed by uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his body will be thrown outside the walls like a donkey. Like an animal. Nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to mourn. After Jehoiakim, and during the reign of Jehoiakim is when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians took over Judah. (coughs) Then, uh, at least the first time, then after Jehoiakim comes Jehoiakim, or Jeconiah, as you may be familiar with. Or later on in about a chapter, we're going to read about Kaniah, because God took away the, the Yah from his name. Yah being the prefix that points to the Lord. So, Kaniah, or Jeconiah, he, uh, he rules after Jehoiakim. And the B- Bible says here in Jeremiah that he is going to be like a broken piece of pottery. And he's going to be sent away into Babylon, and he's never going to come back. All the while Jeconiah is gone, the people believe that he's coming back. And all the while, Jeremiah says he's not coming back. But Nebuchadnezzar set up the fourth king. The fourth king's name is is uh, Zedekiah. Zedekiah could never really gain power because the people were always looking for Jehoiakim to come back. But all the while they're looking for Jehoiakim to come back, Jeremiah's saying he's not coming back. Listen, but they're not listening. And so Zedekiah is a vassal set up, and he can't decide whether he should do what the people want him to do or do what Nebuchadnezzar wants him to do. The thought about what God wants him to do, it's not even there yet. Until chapter 21. Chapter 21, we pick up with King Zedekiah. And the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him, Pasher, the son of Melchiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Maasai, the priest, saying, Please inquire the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, makes war against us. Listen, you remember that name, Pasher? If you were here last week, chapter 20, Pasher was a guy who tortured Jeremiah all night long. Tortured him for all the bad things he was saying. Now, the enemies that, Nebu- or that uh, Jeremiah said were coming are there. And now they're coming to him and saying, Hey, 
will you <clears throat> prophesy? Will you speak to the Lord for us? Because King Nebuchadnezzar's out there and, and all this stuff is happening. And, and he goes on to say, perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful works that the king may go away from us. They're looking for a miracle. Jeremiah, go to God and get us a miracle. For 40 years, they rejected everything God told them. Now that it's waiting outside the gate, hey, God, hey, bring a miracle. Send away this king from us so that we might enjoy the land still. So Jeremiah said to them, thus you shall say to Zedekiah, thus says the Lord God of Israel, behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands with which you fight against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who besiege you outside the walls and I will assemble them in the midst of this city and I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm even in anger and fury and great wrath. So not only does God say no, not only am I not going to give you a miracle but I am going to fight against you. So this judgment, this chastening, this time is irrefutable. It's not turning aside. It's coming. And God says that he is the language that God uses here is language that usually he used against the people that were at war with, with the nation of Israel. But you see, now the nation of Israel just became like everybody else. They worship other gods like everybody else. Initially, when God established the nation of Israel, he established them so that he might be their king. And we just saw what their four kings, their last four kings were like. Not good guys. We'll read a little further. We'll see that these four kings were focused on two things. Luxury and tyranny. Having more. They built magnificent palaces, but they built it out of slave labor. They did magnificent things, but they did it all from from oppressing the poor. And all the while, God was calling out to them to change their ways. But they said, just as they said before Jesus, you remember when Jesus stood before uh, Pilate, facing the people who were crying out, uh, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Do you remember what they said? We have no king but Caesar. Really. That must have made Pilate almost fall over. Because he's been putting down rebellions the whole time he's been there. Now they're saying we don't have a king. What did they effectually do right there, right then with Jesus Christ? They rejected God as king. They want to be a nation like everybody else. They want to have the things everybody else had. So God told them. Way back in the Old Testament, listen, if you guys decide you want kings, the kings are going to tax you and oppress you. And they're going to do these things to build for themselves mighty dynasties. Is that really what you want? No, yeah, that's what we want, God, because that's what everybody else has. Same kind of logic we hear from our kids. And the same kind of logic sometimes we use when we talk to God when we're going through difficult times in our life. We have God's word that tells us here's what the Lord expects. Here's what the Lord desires. Here's how God wants us to walk. But we reject that which God has given us until storm clouds are overhead. Bad things begin to happen. 
I get locked up for the first time in jail. Now I want to cry out to God. Or my husband or wife says, I'm leaving. I can't stand being around you anymore. And you say, that came out of nowhere. And now all of a sudden, I call out to God and save my marriage. But all the while, God's been speaking. God hasn't been silent. We're just disobedient. We're just turning a a deaf ear to what God is saying, what God wants to do. In verse 6, he says, I will strike the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast, and they will die of a great pestilence. And afterward, says the Lord, I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, his servants and the people and such as are left in the city from the pestilence and the sword and the famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. And he will strike them with the edge of the sword. He will not spare them or have pity or mercy. So he says, basically, Zedekiah, he's going to live and go into captivity to Babylon. Now this brings about an interesting point because Ezekiel says that Zedekiah will never see Babylon. But Jeremiah says... That he's going to go in the captivity to Babylon. And how can he go in the captivity of Babylon and never see it? <clears throat> you have to read the story. See, in 2 Kings, when we read the history about this occurring, the scripture says that the first thing that Nebuchadnezzar did was line up for Zedekiah all his children. And he slaughtered them all before his eyes. And then he poked his eyes out. So he never saw Babylon. Though he went. Exactly what the word of God said would take place, took place. And he died in Babylon. He died in that place. He says, I will deliver you into their hands. Now, in verse 8, you will say to this people, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Now this is important to understand because even in God's judgment, He says, I'm going to give you a chance. You want to live? I'll tell you how to live. And actually it wasn't hard. In this occurrence, what God tells them to do is kind of easy to do. Just people didn't want to do it. It's kind of easy to understand, especially in our nation today, in in the move of patriotism that we see in our nation. For example, it would be like this. Somebody invades the United States and we're getting whooped. And God speaks through his prophets you know, if we had prophets that were speaking at that time, and they came and <clears throat> they said, this is what the Lord says. If you want to live, give up, lay down your arms, surrender. If you want to die, pick them up and keep fighting. That's what God tells them. I'll set before you life and death today. If you want to live, lay down your arms. This is what he tells the nation of Israel. He says, he who remains in this city will die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and defects to the Chaldeans who besiege you, he will live, and his life will be like a prize to him. So God tells them, give up and you'll live. Walk out the door, surrender, and it's over. And I'm sure there was... Hundreds and hundreds of men, I might even, if I had been there, been counted among them, that would say, I'm not giving up. 
And God says, then you're going to die. You're going to die in this place because he who lives by the sword does what? Shocking, huh? So they go, for I have set my face against this city for adversity, not for good, says the Lord, and it shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will burn it with fire. So think about that. Remember I told you that that one of their goals in life was he who dies with the most toys, the accumulation of stuff. But when King Nebuchadnezzar came in and took it all over, all having the most toys meant was you had the biggest bonfire at your house. Because he burned it all. He burned everything. Nothing was left. All the pretty houses, all the nice places, all the, the stuff that people had that he didn't want to take for himself, he heaped up in a pile and he burned it with fire. And concerning the house of the king of Judah, say, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of David, thus says the Lord. Now listen, listen to this. Execute judgment in the morning and deliver him who is plundered out of the hand of the oppressor, lest my fury go forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. God's going to tell them a couple of times what he expects of them. And I want you to listen to what he said. Because sometimes I think we as a church think these things aren't important. That we shouldn't have to do these things or that, you know, whatever. We got this, this idea as Americans often that uh, basically says that uh, if you try harder and work harder and put more effort into it, you're going to make it. But you need to understand that is in opposition to God's word. God's word doesn't say the more of the flesh that you put into something, the better off you're going to be. The harder you work, the more you'll succeed at. That's the American dream, not God's. Here's what God says to the people. Execute judgment in the morning and deliver him who is plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Execute judgment. Literally, in the Hebrew, it's execute justice. We have in our country courts of law, right? Are they courts of justice? Not even close. God says, here's the, you want to know what I'm looking for from you? He's talking to them as a nation, as government, as those who rule. He says, execute justice. It means do what's right. Do what's right. Do what God's word is laying out for him. Not only that, but deliver him who was plundered out of the hand of his oppressor. Deliver him. Be a part of delivering those who are oppressed. And he's talking about within his own borders. He's not talking about outside the borders. You could probably make a case for delivering the oppressed outside the borders. But do you realize we have oppressed within the borders? And... As a nation, as I look at the judgment of God upon the nation of of Judah at this time, and God's going to bring them back. He doesn't destroy them forever. They go through this hard time. They go through this fire. And they come through it purified. And as they come purified, the remnant returns to the land. And God continues to move forward with them. But if that's the way that God judged the nation of Judah, who was the apple of his eye, what makes us think that the way we do business day in and day out is okay? It's okay. Jesus said, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, but he who does 
the will of my Father is mine. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, but he who does the will. The idea is that when we give our hearts and lives to Jesus Christ, it changes us. If we're not changed, he doesn't have it. If nothing changed in my life, if I look back, if I could look back in my life and say, my life is not different whatsoever today as it was the day I gave my life to Jesus Christ, then I better take a look at what I think I did. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord. Jesus said, some will say, but Lord, we cast out demons in your name. Lord, we healed in your name. Lord, we prophesied in your name. And Jesus said, depart from me, for I never knew you. I don't know who you are. The Bible says when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he writes our names down in the Lamb's book of life. He knows my name. When he calls me home, he's going to call me by name. When I get to heaven, he's going to give me a new name. One that, that perfectly describes who I am. One that, that he knows because he knows me so well. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. When I call, what do they do? They come to me. But if they don't know my voice, I don't know them. They're not my sheep. They're not my sheep. Here, the same thing, this judgment coming, this attitude of judgment in a nation just like Judah. We're in it today. A nation who, if you went around and polled enough people, you could find a majority that would say, well, why, yes, we, we have... Uh, um, we're a Christian nation. In what? In what we do? Because we execute justice and we, we take care of the, the poor? For crying out loud, we pay farmers to stop growing food. We could have fed the world. We could have fed them all. To me... As a nation, we're accountable for that. We're accountable for... I remember when I was a kid, something was going on with milk. And I was little, so I, don't, I won't pretend to understand it. But this is what I remember. I remember turning on the news and them showing the milk trucks. You guys remember when milk trucks used to deliver milk? Probably not very many. Some of us who are a tad older <clears throat> remember that. And the milk trucks, they were pulling up to the gutters... And pouring the milk down the gutter. And you think, are you kidding me? Because somewhere there's a baby starving who could have that milk. But because the prices aren't good enough, we're just going to throw it away? That's the American dream. I can manipulate the system so I can have more. But remember, he who has the most toys just has the biggest bonfire. It's all just junk. What God cares about, executing justice, delivering the plundered, taking care of the oppressed. And this is what the people of Judah didn't get. They didn't get it. Behold, I am against you, O inhabitant of the valley and rock of the plain, says the Lord. Who say, who shall come down against us? Who shall enter our dwellings? Man, I can hear us as a nation saying that right now. Who could take us? Our, why our soil has never been invaded 
No enemy army has ever set foot on our soil. By the way, that's not true. I could take you to places in Alaska where the Japanese had bunkers built. Where they had it. It was theirs. We took it back. Filled with this, this kind of pride. But I will punish you according to the fruit of your doing, says the Lord. I will kindle a fire in its forest and it will devour all the things around it. Everything is going to burn. So thus says the Lord... Go down to the house of the king of Judah, and there speak this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, you who sit on the throne of David, you and your servants and and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, listen again, execute judgment and righteousness, and deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong. Do no violence to the stranger. That's the alien. Someone strange to your country. The fatherless or the widow. Nor shed innocent blood in this place. That's God's requirement for the nation that was the apple of his eye. And the reason his judgment came upon other nations was because they were in direct opposition to all of these things. God's desire, execute justice and righteousness, doing what's right. It seems so hard for us as a nation. I'm not not necessarily talking to individuals, although that's true as well, to just do what's right. Do the next right thing. Has nothing to do with what somebody else did to you. It's what's right. What's the right thing to do? Do no wrong and no violence to the alien. To the person who is passing through or visiting your country, your nation. That's kind of a hot topic right now, isn't it? Are they taking advantage? Sure. They cost us money? Sure. So if they don't come, will you have more money? No. No they don't have their babies over here they don't raise their family or they don't collect welfare over here i'm not saying it's right i'm just saying do no wrong and no violence to the alien i think the bible is pretty clear when the bible says you reap what you sow Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. If he sows to the flesh, he will of the flesh reap corruption. Folks, we are sowing to the wind and we will reap the whirlwind. That's how it works. What about taking the case, pleading the case of the widow or the fatherless? Man, as as a nation, we we could be about those things. Larry Norman had a song that he used to sing about... uh, during the, the, the days of the Apollo program and sending someone to the moon, which was the most important thing we could ever possibly do, right? I mean, I don't even know how many billion, trillions of dollars we spent, but by golly, the Russians were going to get there first, and we can't let that happen. <clears throat> we call that pride. One of the things Larry Norman said in, in one of his songs was that uh, he, he grew up in the shadow of the silos filled with grain. 
But the nation never helped to fill his empty spoon. There are places all in Idaho where people are hungry. Now, a lazy man in the Bible, hey, I'm not trying to tell you somebody who just sits around with their mouth open, we ought to put a spoonful of food in it. But a man who's willing to go and work, a man who's willing to stand up and gather or glean or do what he can, ought to be able to, to have what he needs, at least according to the, the system that God had worked out. And then it says, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Do you know what the innocent blood he was talking about was? They were killing their kids. They do it different than us. You know, they were were barbaric in those days. We're much more civilized. So they would take and heat up this idol in a fire, and they would lay the baby upon the arms of that idol in the fire, and they'd cook their children as an offering to Ashtoreth or Baal or one of the Canaanite deities, uh, giving their firstborn. When they built a house, many times they would set the foundation with their children. That means they would lay the foundation. They would put their live children in the foundation of their home as a sacrifice to the gods so that their house would be founded solidly. That it would be established. God said, do not shed innocent blood. Oh, we... We do it much better today, though, don't we? We don't, we don't burn our children on, a, on an idol. We do it in the womb. We put in stuff that's the equivalent of pouring salt on a snail, right? Take a snail, turn over, pour salt on it. What happens to the snail? It's just a snail. It just shrivels up. We do the same thing to the unborn The Bible says, do not shed innocent blood in this place. That's what God's talking about. That's what they were doing. That's what we as a nation are struggling with ourselves. In verse 4 he says, For if you indeed do this thing, then shall enter the gates of this house, riding on horses and chariots, accompanied by servants and people, kings who will sit on the throne of David. God says, listen, if you will just live your life like this, then I'll establish you as a nation. And you'll have good kings. But if not, if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house will become a desolation. For thus, says the Lord to the house of the king of Judah, you are Gilead to me, the head of Lebanon, Yet I surely will make you a wilderness, cities which are not inhabited. That being the Gilead or the Lebanon means you're a beautiful place. You're a beautiful place to me. But I will prepare destroyers against you. Everyone with his weapons. And they will cut down your choice cedars and cast them into the fire. The big focus of the kings of Judah was to apply or to gather, gain luxury. And so God says, I'll send destroyers. They're going to burn your cedar. They built whole palaces out of cedar. Must have been a beautiful thing to see. But that's all they cared about. Their stuff. Many nations will pass by the city and everyone will say to his neighbor, Why has the Lord done this to so great a city? And they will answer, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. 
So he says, Weep not for the dead, nor bemoan him. Weep bitterly for him who goes away. For he shall return no more, nor see his native country. For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, the king of Josiah, or the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah his father, who went from this place, he will not return here anymore. So remember I told you, they also called him Jehoahaz. He goes into captivity with Pharaoh Necho, and he'll never come back. Verse 12 says, But he will die in the place where they have led him captive, and he will see this land no more. So Shalom, the, the first of the four kings, he's going to go into captivity. Then in verse 13, he turns his attention to Jehoiakim. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work, who says, I will build myself a wide house with spacious chambers and cut out windows for it, panel it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Here we have the two things, the two problems with the kings of Judah. A desire for luxury, and that drove them to tyranny. That they built these things in unrighteous ways by ripping people off. And God's not okay with it. It's not all right. Shall you reign because you enclose yourself in cedar? Now he's comparing Jehoiakim to his father, Josiah. What, do you think that it makes you a better king because you have a big house? Did not your father eat and drink? And listen, do justice and righteousness. And then it was well with him. What was the key to Josiah's reign? He did justice and righteousness. He desired to to watch out for the oppressed. That's what he goes on to say. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. He took care of the poor. He took care of the needy. So then it was well with him. Now listen to this. Was not this knowing me, said the Lord. Wasn't it knowing me that he did these things? He knew me. He knew me, not because he knew my name. He knew me because he knew my principles. He knew the things that I desired. He lived his life that way. Doing justice. Being right right with God, caring about the cause of the poor. Then it was will. But your eyes, Jehoiakim, your eyes and your heart are for nothing but your covetousness, for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. So he says to Jehoiakim, man, you're, you're as far away from who your father was as you can be. How many times does that happen in life, by the way? You have a father or mom and dad who live a life... In, in righteousness, do their best to raise their kids, only to have their kids rebel outright against it. Run as hard as they can in the opposite direction. Hey, every child gets a point where they have a choice. Every child has an opportunity to make his own decision. No grandkids in the family of God. They come to that place and they can decide. They can be lame and come up with all the excuses they want. For everyone in here who had a perfect dad, go ahead and raise your hand. 
There's one of us. Two. Everyone who had a perfect mom. Everyone who had the perfect example the whole time they grew up. None of us did. Or not many. We come to the Lord based on a relationship that we want with Him. Not what it's about everyone else. Not what someone else has done or what someone else has said. We come to the Lord because we want Him. But Jehoiakim, he wasn't that way. Therefore, this is what the Lord said concerning, concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. They will not lament for him, saying, Alas, my brother, or alas, my sister. They will not lament for him, saying, Alas, my master, or alas, his glory. He will be buried with the burial of a donkey, drug and cast out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. That's what happened. Jeremiah said it, and that's what occurred with Jehoiakim. You can read about it in 2 Kings 24 and uh, what took place in his life. Then, in, in verse 20, God says, Now here's the summation of Jeremiah's first 40 years of ministry. Go up to Lebanon and cry out. Lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry from Abarim, for all your lovers are destroyed. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said I will not hear. This has been your manner from your youth, that you did not obey my voice. I spoke to you. Jeremiah spoke to them in their prosperity when life was good. The church speaks out in prosperity, especially the church in the United States. And we think everything's going to be fine and everything's will go on as they always have. We sang a song tonight called Glorious Day that looks forward to the return of Jesus Christ. That things will not always stay. You ever wonder why there are so many stories and movies about a returning king? King Arthur, one day he'd come back. Or J.R. Tolkien's or C.S. Lewis books or you pick the book. Every book somewhere has got the idea, the concept, the return of a king. Well, who are they talking about? God said, there will always be a king to sit on the throne of David in uh, Jerusalem to rule over the world. And when that king came, the first time, he came showing us what a king should be like. How were these kings? Full of pomp and circumstance, right? Big old fancy houses, big old fancy horses, big old rich, wealthy homes. How did Jesus come? Where was he born? A stable, a manger, right? With the, with the animals. Out with the dogs. Was he about luxury? Was he about tyranny? The only one who had the right to all those things? He never really had his own anything. The whole time he was here, except for the, the cloak that was on his back, and that they'd strip from his back and cast lots for so that someone else could have it. When he was crucified... Didn't even have a tomb to lay him in. He was laid in a borrowed tomb. And when he rode into Jerusalem, did he ride on that big white horse like all the conquering heroes in the past? He came on a donkey. He's a humble king. Just like Judah, you and I have to make a choice. Who's ruling over your life? Who's your king? You have a king like Jehoi Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim. You have a king like Shalom or Zedekiah. 
You have these guys that only care about themselves. Maybe you're your own king. I'm the master of my own destiny. How's that working out for you? Bob Dylan had it right. Got to serve somebody. Might be the devil, might be the Lord, but you have to choose who's going to be your king. Who's going to be the king to rule? Verse 22, he says, The wind will eat up all your rulers, and your lovers will go into captivity. Surely then you will be ashamed and humiliated for all your wickedness. O inhabitant of Lebanon, making your nest in the cedars, how gracious will you be when pangs come upon you like the pain of a woman in labor? The exile began here in the third year of Jehoiakim's reign. Then Jeconiah comes on the scene. As I live, says the Lord, through Coniah. Remember I told you, God took away the Jeconiah, the Jek, Jeh, Yeh, Yahweh, the, 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 point, or the part of his name that speaks of God. You have taken that away, Jeconiah or Jehoiakim, same person. The son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, I would still pluck him off means if he was a ring on my finger, God says, I'd still take him off. And I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those who face, uh, whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the hand of the Chaldeans. So I'll cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. But to the land to which they desire to return, there they shall not return. Remember I said Zedekiah had a hard time ruling afterwards because people were looking for him. 